0: Welcome to the Industry.Fashion's In Conversations podcast, where we invite you to tune in to the stories of some of fashion's most inspirational leaders. From the history of their careers to the current priorities for their businesses and advice for their fellow fashion friends, these conversations cover it all. The In Conversation series is staged in proud partnership with Klarna. I'm Loretta Roberts. Editor in chief of the industry doc fashion, and today we're in conversation with Lone Design Club founder Rebecca Morter. Rebecca is a fashion designer by background, and through setting up her own label Rain London, came to the conclusion that the traditional fashion wholesale and retail model was broken. She set about fixing it in her own way with a new concept, Lone Design Club, which promotes an ever-changing roster of sustainable, independent fashion brands through its website and global pop-up stalls. Rebecca tells us about how, during the pandemic and the lockdowns that have come with it, Lone Design Club has innovated further with shoppable windows that keep its stalls trading even though they are closed. While she finds it hard to admit, Rebecca is a natural entrepreneur having already established two businesses at a young age and possessing a refreshing just-do-it attitude. Rebecca, welcome to the Industry.Fashion podcast. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for joining us.
1: Very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me on.
0: Oh, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Now, listen, um, we are obviously in the midst of lockdown too, in a series, <laughs> of COVID, a series of COVID lockdown. I think you initially came to my attention during the last one. I was keen to speak to you. So um, can you tell me, I mean, because you're, you're a multi-channel business, aren't you are <laughs> you? How did you adapt your business during the last lockdown and how are you ad- adapting during this one? Just how has it been basically yeah. trading this time?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, gosh, it, yeah, kind of casting, casting my mind back now. Um, so March, March was our first lockdown. Um, yeah and so god yeah it was crazy we so we'd actually just come out of the off the back of uh two pop-up stores across London Fashion Week in February um I remember starting to see see things there that um I guess gave us a bit of insight into what was to come but uh we were in Milan actually when in February when um Italy went into um you know into immediate lockdown I think it was we we actually closed our pop-up out there a day early because of what was um it all got you know there the chaos kind of ensued much faster than it did here in the uk um mm-hmm. that was kind of a first warning um and alarm bells started to go off at the same time in london we really noticed um the lack of tourism in february it was there was a big drop for us which especially from um you know asian tourists you know again alarm bells we did actually push ahead and do a pop-up store in March, um, which surprisingly went incredibly well. And I think it's in one of our kind of top five pop-ups ever, which is bizarre considering. Wow. Yeah. Considering the last, the final week was, um, so affected, but amazingly, yeah. We never had a day without, um, sales. where yeah. you know, and that literally finished a couple of days. I think it finished two days before we went into UK lockdown. So it was quite, it was, it was a very, you know, it was a very tumultuous time. Um, but basically, I think it was it was lucky that we we had seen what had happened in February. We were prepared. We do a lot of work in China. A lot of our directors, um, not directors, but investors and advisors are uh, work in China. So there was a lot of talk about right. We need to seriously um you know we need to knuckle down, scale back where possible. This is going to be bad. Um, it could be very, very serious. I don't think anyone realized just how long this was going to go on back then. I remember conversations with some people saying, oh, it could be weeks. It could be a couple of months, you know, but then I had other advisors saying, no, 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 you're looking at 18 months. So it was, you know, it was crazy, but luckily we thought "Look, let's prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Um, so we went into a massive, um, there were two things that that I really focused on. One was content is king and, of course, cash is king. So we just focused on going as hard as we could on both of those points, um, knowing that we needed to survive, but to survive um, in terms of customer-facing and brand-facing, we needed content. So yeah. it was pretty crazy, especially the last week before lockdown in March, the team went, you know, they were super crazy. They were literally getting content round the clock. Um, they were filming in the store from 8, 9 until kind of 10, um, to get as much as we possibly could um, which was lucky we did because then there was months of just sitting at home not being able to you know just not being able to do anything Exactly. Um, well not
0: quite so bad this time I suppose and we hope that it's got a an end date but nonetheless it's a bit yeah. of like, again for the benefit of our listeners just um give us a the elevator pitch of Loan Design Club. And before we get too much into the business, I want to go back to your background. But just before we do that, tell us tell us what it is sure. and uh, so people understand.
1: Yeah. So what we do at Loan Design Club is, um, you know, we say that we're the new way to shop. Um, we believe that sustainable brands are the future, um, and it's really important for us to put these brands these sustainable brands in front of the right customer the biggest yeah. challenge for small independent brands is accessing not only the right customer but getting to market in this day and age wholesale bigger retailers it's challenging and tricky they don't want to take a risk on smaller brands at the same time it's expensive and it's an outdated route for these brands yeah. to market the customers they're demanding better you know, they've very much um, accelerated um, what they want from brands, what they want from products, that messaging, that story, sustainability first, and shopping consciously. So for us, it's really about taking retail into the future and into its new era, um, which for us, although the pandemic has been very, you know, it's been challenging for everybody, especially on that bottom line, it's shown yeah. huge opportunity for us. And, you know, when you know we, we talk about this retail renaissance, you know, we're really much looking forward and gearing up for this because traditional retail now is dead and anyone who thinks it's still going to hang on and someone's going to go for those 15 20 years leases is mad. Um, so yeah. it's for us it's, it's very positive. Good. So we'll get
0: into more detail about about the business momentarily but let's just talk about you because I think your background obviously informed your opinions on this and how you how you went about setting up the, the company. So you you trained as a designer, am I right, a fashion designer. You had your own brand. T- yeah. t- tell us about
1: that. Yeah, so I um, yeah, I never thought I'd end up in retail. Uh, mm. I, never, I mean, I guess a lot of people say that, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I never thought I'd be here on this side of the fence. But, yeah, I trained as a designer. Um, I worked with people like Alexander Wang, Simone Rocha, Graham Armour, uh, Ping He, Paul Costello. I also did a stint at John Lewis. Um, so very much on the design side, not at all, uh, on the business or, uh, entrepreneur on the side anyway. Yeah. Um, but I guess, I guess kind of, you know, for me, it was, um, when I was, when I was working in the industry, I'd come out of uni, it was kind of a year or so in, um, I was doing a lot with people like Lady Gaga, Charlie X, CX, various, some amazing celebrities. We were doing commissions, um, mm-hmm. doing, you know, work kind of on the side, um, and I got together with a friend of mine at the time and we we decided to launch, um, launch our own brand. Uh, we did this British Fashion Council, London Fashion Week offered um, us or encouraged us to showcase, which was a bit of a tipping point. And we thought, you know what, let's do it. You know, we're young. It's a great opportunity. I mean, you know, we were very naive, which I kind of like, you know, we just thought, yeah, let's just quit our job. Let's just do this. there was no business plan there was no um there was no understanding that wait how are we gonna pay like how are we gonna live we've got rent to pay We got to eat there there was none of that it was like yeah this is amazing let's do it we'll make it work um and I admire that about looking back but at the same time it's like gosh you were so naive um you know and you you learn a lot you know it's character building those first few months years but yeah so we we launched at fashion week um And it was amazing. You know, it's an incredible platform um, and it was an incredible journey for us. What we found interesting was how to build an organic and sustainable business when you are self-funded and when you are selling to stores, when you have zero control over the relationship with the end customer. We were, I think it was, it was very timely when we launched because the industry was going through a huge change. I mean, it has, but that year particularly. When was it that you launched your label? What year was that? And what, what was the label called as well? Yeah, so was back in 2015, February, that right. we launched. Um, the brand was called Rain London. We, and yeah, I guess, so the big thing for us was, you know, the first, the first few seasons were really good and really interesting. We were growing, um, we were meeting great people. But as fashion week went on, there were less and less buyers. There were less and less stores. Stores were closing. Um, sell-throughs were struggling. It wasn't, the industry wasn't working, especially for small brands. They were moving towards bigger brands. They were pulling out of younger brands. Yeah. Um, and this was a challenge. You know, we're trying to build an organic, sustainable business. We're trying to grow, grow a business from something that initially was purely based on, you know, creativity and, yeah. you know, our excitement and passion. Yeah. Um And it was, there was a disparity. It wasn't working. Even when you did get the orders, they're so expensive to fulfill, you know, and the minimums are tiny, but you've got surcharges everywhere. You know, you've got your mills that want, you know, 30% because you can't, you know, you can't meet their minimums. Same with production. So we started going direct to consumer. Um, We realized actually what was funding us was private orders. Um, We had a couple of great private clients that were you know it was those um them their friend groups those events that were funding what we were doing yeah. so we started taking over pop-up spaces um we realized pretty early on after conversations with fellow brands at fashion week and our network this wasn't just us this was a industry wide issue and uh, after talking to a couple of business mentors that we had at the time they were they were like you know, they were dumbfounded they're like how does anyone build a business like I'm sorry, what? You spend what? And your projections are what? Like, this is ridiculous. This isn't business. And <laughs> that was the big eye-opener. That gosh, there's so much talent out there that does not know how to build a business. There's a yeah. massive disparity between creativity, talent, and, you know, turning that hobby into an actual yeah. business that can sustain. Um, that whole
0: channel is pretty fraught, actually, isn't it? Because I think you've said before, I've, I think we both participated in a, mm. a panel. You talked about the wholesale channel really being broken because there's so many people taking their cut in that in that process that it ends up becoming almost impossible for designers to make any money,
1: you know. You're so far away from your end consumer as well. There's all these people That's in the way. Big, yeah, and I think for, for us that was the big challenge. You know, it was we we, you know, you're especially as a designer, you're creating based on vision and, you know, it's this inspiration, but what does the customer want? Because they probably, you know, there's a lot in there that they don't need from your creative, you know, from the inspiration side. And this is why direct consumer was so powerful because not only were we putting small businesses in front of customers and giving a customer a completely unique experience, meeting the designer behind a brand, having that conversation and experience and nostalgia that was being created, um, yeah. that was something you couldn't get online and you certainly will never get on the high street. But on the yeah. other side of the fence, these brands are getting first-hand feedback from customers who are actually willing to pay cold, hard cash. Do yeah. they want to buy or not? And if they don't, why? What is it about your business that people want? The commercial side that's crucial, what are they going to pay for it? Is it the cup, the feel, the material? And that's yeah. something that online alone struggles with, which is why I've always believed in a hybrid of yeah. you know, physical and digital. Um but it, when basically it was those two really crucial things that we yeah. that grew Lone Sign Club. So you're use so
0: you've got online. So you're basically taking a group of designers. You've got online um, channels for them, and your physical retail model is based on pop ups around the world at certain points in time. Right. Exactly. So how did you get this business off the ground? What did you do to get backers? How did you get the designers on board, etc.?
1: So at the beginning, I was using. At the beginning, it was very much focusing on a pop-up store model. Um, we were taking over. I was taking over spaces. I had a community of brands were willing that wanted to be part of it. Um, mm. they do – it would. It was a series. It was almost every month, kind of every two months, we would pop up a different location, different time of year, different brands, very curated. So what location will have the best success for which brands, what time of the year, what concept, all of that. Wow. Um, and then that grew. So the community of brands grew. At the same time, the community of customers uh, we'd have customers that would come to all of them because it wasn't a boring, stale store. It was about a whole new experience every time. Uh, so the communities grew. And this, so the first store I did was in 2016 um, in a frozen yogurt shop, believe it or not, on Brick Lane. Uh, we had no money and it was the cheapest place, space on a pair here. And we were like, let's do it. Let's, you know, try it. So we we made all our own furniture. We, you know, It was mad. It was crazy looking back. Um, but, yeah, so we... We grew, the communities really grew. And that was the big, that was the big kind of, okay, there's something here. The second yeah. thing was um in 2018 in May, one of my business mentors at the time, um, we he was helping more and more, especially on cash flow. I don't have any background in business or finance, cash flow, anything. So it was all new and I'm still learning as I go. Um, which is is hard and it's a problem that a lot of small, you know, especially creative businesses have. Um, and he was helping a lot. And in May 2018, he was like, look, I think you should make a decision because you could keep going with your brand or you could do both, or you could really do this. You know, House of Fraser, Debenhams, a lot of bigger retailers crashing. This is a really opportune moment. We could we could launch this properly. So I made the decision. I put my brand on hold. Uh, for me, it was a decision based pure, mostly on the impact I could have would be a lot more positive. By running Loan Design Club, I'd be able to support and promote these sustainable brands and get them to market as opposed to just being another brand in this, you know, quite saturated market. So it was a decision based on where I could have the most purpose. And I was more and more interested in sustainability um, and putting that at the absolute forefront of everything I did. Um, and yeah, since then we we incorporated, um, we were revenue positive at the beginning, Um the stores are, you know, for us, the business model is good. Um, every, you know, brands are paying, but they're paying a fraction of what it would be to do store themselves. Um, and it's not a lot of money with, you know, a a good kind of three times return on investment. So the model worked on both sides. Um, Mm -hmm. and what we, you know, because we had that initial kind of, you know, we were good on revenue. It meant that we were able to you know, we had something solid. Um, we did, we took our first round of investment in I think October 2018. Um, and it was a small round. Um, it was a fashion technology accelerator um, who's based out of Italy, which was great because it meant the start of our international side. Um, and then a couple of smaller angels. Uh, well, one, one angel at a time. Um, yeah. And then since then, it's just been growing, growing and growing and, you know, trying to, I mean, our big vision is, you know, with these physical spaces, we're giving brands access to these customers. Everybody is working hand-in-hand hand to promote and market the store. You know, it's that focusing on that combined reach and harnessing that. Um, and if we all tell the same message, it's so much more powerful. Yeah. Uh, and integrating that with digital, and that was where it became crucial because we were finding there were more and more global customers, um, tourists, you know, about 30% of our traffic and um best conversion was from tourists that wanted something unique to take home so because of that the digital became very important as a way to retain um you know a lot of customers in China a lot from the US um and even now our e-commerce is about 60% UK the rest is international so it's it's a very yeah I mean it's definitely got that international side to it um I mean, a big thing for us as well is everyone says to me oh but pop-ups they're so resource intensive they're not scalable and I'm like they're so scalable you don't have to have a permanent store well I can't think of anything more lean and agile you know we've got yeah. the model like we know how to do it we've got the playbook it takes a couple of staff members you know I think we've just got to the point where we've perfected we know what works and what doesn't and how to do it and when you've yeah. got that it's it's great you know I'm Initially the first store we did it, it was the easiest thing was doing the pop-up. The hardest part was being able to process payments because the tax laws and the legals are crazy. Yeah. So and people say to me that, oh, but it's so much why I'm like, no, getting the legal, you know, illegally allowed to be able to sell in that country is much harder. Uh, um, so getting that
0: permit to trade almost, if you will.
1: Yeah.
0: Challenge than actually finding a space. And I mean you mentioned a appear here actually earlier in the conversation. I mean, that's another business that has boomed yeah. lately on the back of the sort of demise of the traditional retail model, I suppose. But I would imagine now is the perfect time to scale a sort of pop-up model yeah. since there are so many empty units around. But exactly. Actually, it makes it makes for a more exciting sort of retail environment for the consumer, doesn't it, if it changes in a positive way?
1: Yeah. You know, people want, you know, I was having a conversation this morning actually with somebody about retail and like, well, you know, what is going to, what do you think is going to happen? Like, you know, it's not going to, is it going to pick up? And I was like, of course it's going to pick up. You know, I, I don't believe in our day and age, we're going to lose the high street. Um, mm-hmm. I think the big issue is it needs reinventing, you know, people, before the pandemic, traditional retail, it wasn't working. It's certainly is now. And that doesn't mean it won't, but it just needs huge reinvention. You know, for us, we see, you know, it's really important when you're selling you digitally native brands themselves are jumping into physical bricks and mortar because everyone can see the value, you know, yes, your online is great. It's discovery or it's for loyal customers. It's very difficult to capture new customers digitally, especially yeah. when you're selling brands people haven't heard of, you know, and products yeah. need trying on and touching and feeling.
0: I do you know, it's interesting that you said that and I I wasn't going to talk to you about this, but I will since you brought it up. Because I think at the moment, and you talked, you mentioned it earlier as well, there's so much digital content around, yeah. which is very, very difficult to get mind share of customer at the moment because people are being constantly bombarded by digital messages, whether emails, yeah. social media, whatever it might be. And I think brands are, we're seeing brands increasingly turn to television, increasingly yeah. turn to brochures. And as you say, Increasingly turning to physical stores to capture people's attention, and also the physical store clearly has that added benefit of people being able to experience your brand um, and touch it and try it on. But I imagine we'll see more of that. I realise that people are constrained in what they can do in terms of shops right now, but I do think that will mm. that will change moving forward. So it's interesting you say that as a new generation person, because so many have just eschewed, eschewed the physical store, but I, yeah.
1: think, I think back. Definitely. It's just, it just, it'll just come back differently. You know, we're we're social creatures that you know thrive off entertainment where we're not going to just sit at home. You know, everyone's complaining about lockdown. You know, people want yeah. to get out. They want to feel part of something again. We're, we're so community driven. You know, we want to be together. We want to share our ideas, our values. And yeah. I think all that's just going to reinforce a, a really incredible, you know, retail renaissance. It's what form it takes. We'll see. But there will definitely be that drive back. And I think more value put on those experiences. You know, you're not just going into a shop for a transaction. That's where retail's not working. You're going in to be inspired. Um, It's part of a social outing. It's something you do with other people. It's discovery. It's excitement, entertainment. Um, And that's where we're going to see a lot of, you know, that's going to be the big revolution. Um, And it'll be interesting how brands keep up with this. Um. Yeah.
0: Now it's time to hear a bit more about our wonderful partners, Klarna. Klarna lets customers pay up to 30 days later or in three installments at thousands of online stores such as ASOS, River Island, Michael Kors, Made.com and many more. Find out more at Klarna.com. One of the things you did, and I think you still have got um, a large presence there, you had these shoppable windows, so the yeah. some stores. But they were still working for you. Uh, can you talk us through that? Because um, I thought that was quite a smart thing to do. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, these have been great. Actually, we've got um, so we've still got the ones on South Malton Street. Um, we've got two on two more in Mayfair as well, and we've actually turned down. So we were supposed to have a pop of Malibu, um that opened the day before lockdown. So I know. So we had one day, uh, but it was fine because we've managed. to – We did the shoppable windows there as well. Yes. So. Essentially, for us, I mean, we've been working a lot with landlords. You know, there's on that side as well. um, I guess the challenges that we're or where we're helping is on the customer side, helping access sustainable brands and have a new retail experience um, that's more meaningful. On the brand side, it's helping brands get to market, um, Mm -hmm. and that's physical and digital. And then on the landlord side, it's supporting um, supporting them with this retail revolution. Um, you know, they want to keep their current tenants happy. They want excitement. They want traffic. They want engagement. There's nothing worse than empty, a, a, a street of empty shops. South Mountain Street was a really interesting one for us. Um, the landlord brought us in to really reinvigorate and just had a bit of excitement and help get the buzziness back to the street. Um, and that's where we launched our shoppable windows, as you said, Um And essentially what we did is we wanted to, we wanted to like gamifying the shopping experience, you know, this idea that you don't have to have a shop open for it to be open. You know, we all have online shops. We talk about these being our digital storefronts. So why couldn't this marry with a physical in a way like a vending machine would? Um, And this has been done before in various ways, but for us, it was about we're getting this retail space. There are local people that live around here. Um, This is something that can engage and can bring people to the area and give them a bit of, and excitement and a community spirit. So yeah. we, but we basically designed some great kind of impactful um, window displays with lots of our brands, multi-brand products. Um, and then we use QR codes to put all over the windows. So with different messages, some of the stores just say shop the edit and basically that's shop what's in the window and then talk about the accessories, jackets, other stores, the ones in Cardiff are more um, experiential, a bit more immersive. we, took about 12 brands to Cardiff with us and did two units. Um, and not only did we, we put items in the windows, but instead of just having shop certain items, we tried to make it take it a bit further. So it was things like, um, read about our sustainability values or meet the designers, um, or here's a new beauty brand, a clean beauty brand, watch the makeup tutorial, um, enter a competition, various touch points to like to deepen that engagement and can gamify it. and it's it's been really interesting. The Cardiff stores surprise us the most. Um, we really didn't think our customer was in Cardiff, especially not through windows. You know, their marketing—it's awareness. It's great for yeah. recognition of people walking past. And but we didn't think people would shop um, in Cardiff. It's been amazing. We've had um, so we've saw about hundred percent website uh, traffic increase just from from those the that area in Wales which was one thing. The second thing that was more interesting was your industry average conversion rate is around 2%. Our mm-hmm. of windows have a 6% conversion. So it's three times the average of an area that we don't have any presence in. And what wow. we were finding is people were scanning the QRs, they were shopping directly, or they were live chatting and asking more about the brands and about the products. So it's really interesting when you start to see like physical isn't just limited to a store that's open with staff. It can be so. a complete different hybrid. Um, wow. But, yeah, it's been it's been super positive. We've got a lot more on the cards opening uh, soon as well. So it's, it's exciting.
0: That's really great to hear, actually, isn't it? Because I've seen, I've seen quite a lot of innovative things where people have really made those stores work hard, even though they couldn't actually open the front door during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And that's another fantastic example. And it's another fantastic example of the way people are changing the way they shop. But I wanted to talk to you, it be completely remiss of me not to, about your thoughts on sustainability. You're mm-hmm. clearly passionate about it Um, and I wondered what you thought was happening from a consumer perspective on that front because you're seeing people wanting to interact with your content I imagine part of that is to learn about the credentials of the brand and how the clothing is made there's a lot of talk that we've all had time to stop and think about our consumption at this point in time have you noticed that and do you think that will continue
1: yeah, hugely. I think this is one of the positives that's come out of the past few months. Um, and it's been an interesting ride. Um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were having conversations with people like, um, you know, Tamsin from Common Objective, um, Tamara, Round Roundtable. And there was a lot of talk about this huge sudden increase in awareness and conversation and discussion around sustainability, what that means for the fashion industry what that means is us as consumers being at home and yes people had time to to think to kind of reset to look at their values and where their loyalties lie um and it was you know it's really interesting seeing that change we massively saw it at the beginning of lockdown there was a huge drive to support local brands which was incredible um a huge amount of awareness around you know i think people started to realize i don't want my local pub to actually go and there's some small little boutiques on a high street that I love. Like I I don't want them to close. And I think there was that fear, like, Oh my gosh, this could actually put these people out of business. And then there was that second thought was like, these aren't big chains that can just survive and are just So corporate, Um, these are real genuine people that have livelihoods that they're trying to keep alive. You know, they've got families to support. They're doing everything they can. Um, And I think that was a big kind of, um that kind of hit home for a lot of people um and I think that goes hand in hand with sustainability for us you know it's very much about approaching um you know you know we speak about three values or our three categories which is uh, sustainability ethics and social responsibility and I think BLM and what happened that the George Floyd Um, you know that's really shown that within this conversation about sustainability it's not just about using better materials it's not just about um, fair wages it's not just about longevity um, of products but it's also about social and it's about inclusivity diversity um, and how we behave and interact as humans with each other Um, and I think it's what you know building on sustainability becoming such an important topic these past few months, it's created a more well-rounded view of what this means and what our responsibilities are as businesses. And as we grow um, and taking a stance and being genuine and authentic has never been more important ever. Um, and that's what we've seen customers really want to see and connect with is the people that authenticness, those genuine values um, yeah. Which has just been incredible. Would you say
0: your customers at the younger end of the scale um, tends to be more? I'm not, I don't want to generalize, but those customers tend to be more engaged with those kind of issues. But what
1: about yeah. you your customer. It's, it's interesting. Um, we we definitely have a younger customer, but our core customer is thirty to fifty.
0: Okay, so not they're not. They're not sort of you know Gen Z they' they're older than that yeah
1: exactly so. um, which is why it's important you know it, it's it is challenging. Um, the younger generation are you know Gen Z. there's very much that sustainability first um, conversation with the younger audience. Um, our price points are a little higher. Which is why, you know, so our younger audience will buy the most frequently, they'll attend the events, they'll be in the conversation the most, and they'll be looking for sustainable first conversation. They don't have necessarily disposable income, or they're in an the early stage of our customer, um, that customer journey with us. The reasons so the 30 to 50 is our core, um, you know, they have the disposable income, what they're really looking for is that unique, different purchase sustainability is becoming important to them, but it is not their first decision. Um, and This is a difference. And this is one of the reasons why we're very careful with how we message. I'm a firm believer as well, that I'm not going to use sustainability as a USP in my business. I think every business should be extremely sustainably minded. They should be thinking about their approach and that opening that conversation, regardless of what, what the business does. It should not be that point of difference. It should be ingrained in every business, and because of that, it's important for us to not just use that um, to push on customers. It's still early days, you know. As well, it has changed and accelerated the past few months, but a lot of customers don't want it pushed down their throat, and I think you know we do see it in store sometimes the conversation gets a little heavy and people just feel uncomfortable and it's very overwhelming and nobody wants that. You know, you want to feel good about a purchase, but you have to be careful how you have that conversation. You know, for us, it's our job. You know, we always say, you know, that our, you know, we're giving these incredible, unique brands, these, you know, you're getting in front of customers, um, you're supporting, you know, these independent designers and buying something beautiful and incredible. Um, the sustainability bit, leave it to us. We've spoken, we've worked with the brands, we've vetted them. We're working to make them better as well. Let us do that bit, you know, and, and also if you're interested, we'll help you understand and educate you, but it's not something I'm going to use to, I don't want to preach to the choir, you know, either. So it's, it's being careful about how, how we have that conversation.
0: That's, that's fantastic. so you, you've said um, a couple of times during this chat, I'm not a business person, I don't have a background in business, but. You have set up two businesses, and you're still very young yourself. Um, you come across to me, and, and you're pretty fearless, it seems. You just go and do it. <laughs> you come across to me as about a natural example of an entrepreneur as there could possibly be. Um, have you surprised yourself, then, because you, you say, "Oh, I've, I don't have any training, this isn't my background, but you have set up two businesses.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm definitely much more, I've, I have surprised myself. Um, I'm much more business minded than I thought I was. Um, yeah. And I'm much more passionate about it and interested, um, which really helps. Um, I always thought I was more on the creative side. Um, I, I don't know. I don't really know. I don't know if I need to like decide or, or uh, but it, it's interesting. I mean, I don't have the traditional business training that I guess a lot of people do or would would to go into entrepreneurship, um, and it sometimes is quite challenging because there are things that I feel like I have to learn. I'm I'm, le- I'm still learning so much, um, but it's I, yeah. I guess that's a it's a challenge, uh, but it is something I'm settling into. You know, it's been two and a half years now, and this is you know, it's you know we're getting there. Um, so I'm definitely kind of feeling more confident and comfortable on that business side. It's good. I mean, I
0: think it's a great example to people who should, you shouldn't just put yourself in a box.
1: Mm. You know,
0: I, I'm I'm the designer, I'm the creative. You you, you know, yeah. you can also get your head around the business side of it, the numbers, the technology, the Definitely. marketing. Because there's so many facets to it, aren't there? Would you... You know you say it's early days and it is, I get that, but do you have any advice if anybody else is out there thinking, I'll set my own label or I'll set up a shop or whatever? Do you have any kind of advice that you would impart to them at the start of their journey?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think I love entrepreneurship. I think it is you know I think it's one of the it's it's very you know it's so positive and it's something we can all um, I think there's a time in life when we can all you know act upon it. Um, it is hard. It is challenging. I'm sure you would agree. You know, there are days where you, um, you know, the highs are really high, the lows are really low. Um, but you've just got to keep. You know, if you have a vision and you have something you're passionate about, you have to. You have to act on it. I am a risk taker. I will take risks. Um, I'm cautious in some some ways, but I I think you need to go with your gut and you need to take those risks if you believe in it. Um I think the one thing I would say or advice is just making sure that you um or I think one of my biggest uh, looking back where I would have put more emphasis is taking time um to really get things to a point that I felt was good you know i've I'm very impulsive um you know i' risk taker, I do kind of rush. Things and I want things done. I'm very impatient, um, and I think having that balance of, um, you know, impulsiveness and and wanting to you know, urgency, but also being able to sit back and be like, is this is this 100 percent what i want to put out or what I'm what I want to do, um, and just making sure there's really that balance between the two, because there are times where I've rushed ahead and done things. I'm like, ah, it's fine, but if I had properly If I had properly thought about it or properly, you know, if I'd sat down longer or I'd had more conversations, I think I could have done a really great job. You know, it's that quality over quantity. Um, And I think that's a really important thing is really think about what you're doing. Um, And if you're super passionate about it and driven, do it. But just make sure you're focusing on one thing really, really well. Um, Yeah. Because doing lots of them not so great, and half fasting, it's not going to go anywhere. But when you can get one thing really right, that's what the power is.
0: Yeah, I've always been told because um, I set up my own business as well. As you reference there, and I, it, I was always told it's it's better to have um, quality of execution than quality yeah. of idea, right? Just. Definitely no point in having these brilliant ideas and as you say half-arsing them all because you just <laughs> you're gonna go nowhere like that you know you're you may not have the world's most brilliant idea but if you're brilliant at it you've got a better chance of success I think um yeah, really that being said you've got a brilliant idea and it <laughs> seems like you're doing a brilliant job of it as well so that's happy news um I want to thank you for your time Rebecca because it's been really a long time coming. this podcast I know we've been trying to get hold of each other for a while now and um I'm really glad I had the chance to talk to you and you've been incredibly inspiring. So I want to wish you the best of luck when, and let's hope when we reopen, which we will, fingers crossed, early December, things will really pick up for you again. And um, I'll pop in. I'll I'll come and see. I'll go through the store. So thank you. And very, very best of luck to you. No problem. Thanks. It's been great. We hope you enjoyed listening to the In Conversation podcast. If ever you want to be there in person, visit our website at theindustry.fashion and sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know about future events. You will also be kept up to date with breaking news, in-depth features and our data-led consumer studies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to our partners, Klarna. Keep an eye on the website, subscribe, sign up, do whatever it is you do to be sure not to miss the next episode.